on maynard.com.au. AU! Now I want when you do something for a long time, when you do something for 26 years and 10 months, you're not just good at it, you're fucking brilliant at it. I'm talking to two people that have ran the Hellfire Club in Sydney for 26 years and 10 months. We've got Ultra Hello. Hello. And Master Tom. Hey. How are you feeling? It's 48 hours after you put the club to bed there after way back at Black Market in 93? 1993. Yeah, we're feeling every one of those 26 years and 10 months, can I just say. I was young and skinny when it started. Now I'm twice the man I used to be. And you actually met at the club, didn't you? We did. We met in maybe August 1993. Looking at the final night you had there, the crowd has evolved would be one word. There are a lot of people looking the look but not really playing the way they used to back in the day. Is that because society's changed or because my eyes are so bad I didn't see it? Oh, both. Because there was a bit of play going on around the frames well, and in the, the corners. Yeah. There were two A-frames going, one in the back corner, one in the front corner. Things have changed. Nightclubs have changed. Nightclub culture's changed. Black Market was a unique and special institution where kind of anything went and did. It was all brand new then and everyone was making it up as they went along and there was nowhere else to do anything like that at the time. But since then, and largely as a result of Hellfire, there's been a proliferation of other events, other parties, other venues and other opportunities for people to do this kind of stuff, not in a nightclub. What's the final story went? That's it. Uh, Let's end it. A $20,000 bar minimum. That's a lot of money. In the world of Australian nightclubs, is that considered a high minimum spend at the Uh, bar? Explain to people what it is too. A minimum spend is the amount the club owner has to take and if they take any less than that, you have to make up the difference. For example, at Hellfire, the average spend over the bar was probably around $12,000 or so. So we would have been having to pay them $8,000 per night to make it up to that 20k minimum on top of naturally paying for everything from the door bitches to the performers to the djs to the lighting guy and so on and so on your door people were amongst the best in australia and consistently the best in australia and you had a whole really friendly bunch of people there that were your crew most of our staff have done more than 10 years with us dj sveta i think she's on her long service leave at the moment (laughs) yes if our industry only had things like long service leave and sick pay our staff have been wonderful and a big part of why we continued doing it for so long. You don't want to move it again because you've moved, is it 13? 13 times. What was the briefest, uh-oh, not so much good venue of, of the 13? Come on, let's do some dirty. One, one, one night at the Cauldron. <laughs> oh, Remember the Cauldron? The no, no, Dean's Cafe was actually oh, the Cafe, briefest. Yes. Hang on, Dean's Cafe in Kellett Street? Yes. yes. What? We um, arrived at the club to find that the manager had absconded with the money and the doors were chained shut. So we put a note on the door and said, look, we'll be at Dean's Cafe. And Craig at that time happened to live above it. So we rang them and said, can we bring our nightclub? (laughs) 
to a cafe and there was someone over in the corner having a macchiato that was going there was and there, there, were, there were literally people being spanked over the jukebox <laughs> and really there is a shortage of venues in Sydney anyway because you've got a specific set of desires so to speak to have hellfire anyway so you'd have to go on the whole search again yeah and well, we've done that search so many times we know what's around it's actually a search about which of your patrons you want to screw because we pride ourselves on being inclusive so for example when we went to Universal we had to think about the fact that it's over 21 years old and it has no disability access and we had a large number of patrons in wheelchairs mm. each time we go oh do we cut off the smokers legs or do we cut off the people who want to hang from the ceiling because there's no rigging point we have a very difficult list we need them to have a functioning coat check because most people wear very little and of the 13 venues is there one that you think was ideal the one i thought well but obviously black market was pretty damn good to start with but q bar was certainly very good because of its divided space you could make yep. the dancers happy and the people who just want to have a nice quiet time in the dark they hated the carpet at cuba <laughs> carpet burns <laughs> stuck <laughs> and stuck to you yeah, yeah right. it was a totally adhesive which was great it meant that you never fell <laughs> over <laughs> you know you couldn't if you tried yeah cuba was festy as hell but it was the two rooms set up was really good because you did have one space mm. that was kind of low volume and people could talk more easily than the loud dance floor area that was kind of cool the gaff was another good one I particularly liked it when Cuba replaced their stage with a skateboard ramp. <laughs> that was hilarious because I came in and went, oh. Shout out to the performer that told me she had never been so degraded as to be asked to perform on a skateboard ramp. That's kind of ironic. Being, uh, I know, right? I've come to Hellfire, BDSM club, and I've been degraded. <laughs> There's been so many venues, some really weird ones. You know, it was a really brief period at DCM of all places. As I mentioned, one night at the Cauldron, there was a, a short-lived club on Oxford Street called Eden. There was locked down, <laughs> yeah. but it was one of those weird little downstairs Oxford Street ones. One of the most important ones, Icebox, on number two, Kellett Street, King's Cross, and of course, Club 77 yes. on William Street, King's Cross. The order was Black Market, then Cauldron, Icebox, Rogues, the Gaff, oh God, I'm getting the set sequence wrong, yeah, DCM, Eden, 77, Icebox, Q Bar, 34B, Midnight Shift, the Beat Bar, the Beat Bar was a short-lived one, three months at the Beat Bar. Where was that? Main drag of King's Cross. It was the old Commonwealth Bank, so we were partying in the vault. Candy's Apartment, great venue, lovely, lovely people, really festy venue, they got it stank. Home, home, the the rooftop of a home, that was an odd one. I remember that one. And then finally at Universal. Do you despair for the state of Sydney clubbing? The lockout laws are coming off as we speak in January. Do you think that's going to change anything? Of course I despair. We were part of a generation where we got to dance until dawn and then, you know, spend the rest of the morning on the beach. Isn't that a horrible thing to deprive our next generation of? I hate to say it because it makes you sound a bit like Grandpa Simpson shouting at clouds, but you tell that to kids today and they won't believe you. They won't believe there'd be 10,000 people going to the Horden every weekend for close on two or three years, taking stuff, police leave you alone. Taxi club. Do you remember? Yes, torn pantyhose in the men and the women's toilets. And I was just wondering if it was the same person going in both, an enigma. And the people that were there, like I met more and learnt more about drag queens at the taxi club than I did in any other place because it was a little bit from every nightclub up and down the strip that ended up at the taxi at 6am. There's nothing more embarrassing than showing 
an international visitor around the Sydney <laughs> of today. You're out and it's getting near 1.30 in the morning. It's like, quick, we have to get in somewhere. And they're going, well, but why? Because of the lockouts. What's a lockout? You try to explain it to them on the street and they go, but that's ridiculous. And it is humiliating and embarrassing. And I'm sorry, Sydney in the 90s was one of the great party cities in the world. Mm. It was up there with Amsterdam. It was up there with New York. It was a shitload of fun. And the rules have not been based on evidence. So we're telling Scotch drinkers they can't have a scotch in a glass of ice. Well, I guarantee a Scotch drinker is not the kind of person usually that glasses you with a glass. So why are we punishing everyone? Women are not violent. Why are we punishing women? And all of the violence that did happen happened way before 1.30 as well, didn't it? What is the connection between these things? One connection, real estate, Mm. development. That's Mm. it. That's it. That's what all it was all about. The cross is just eerie now, isn't it? Well, it is eerie. We visit a restaurant. We've been visiting them for the past 15-odd years, and we happened to visit them again recently, and we noticed that the staff on Maclay Street was saying hello to everybody who walked past who was over 60, and they knew the name of their dog. So it's now been opened up for retirees who want to walk to the opera house, who want want to walk to the botanical gardens, who want to be within cooey of the ballet. They've sold their family homes out in the burbs and bought one or two bedders in Potts Point so that they can be near the action. When I say action, I mean the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the museum and the Sydney Opera House and some nice little restaurants. Clover always said, too, what she saw in the future was the Sydney where people are drinking a nice glass of wine whilst reading a book in a wine bar or talking to people about books. You read that book out loud, but and the drug dogs will be there and the, and the SWAT team will be called. I saw you moving your lips when you were reading. What a, what a show. The arse end of everything. The end of the old fire. How come you think you managed to survive so long then, given that environment has been here for many years now? How come Hellfire has survived for 26 years and 10 months? We were about building community as much as we were about taking drugs and alcohol. What we were offering was something really quite unique and what was really interesting uh, about closing it was just seeing how much it mattered to people. Nightclubs don't matter. They're not kind of significant. They're fun, ephemeral things that you do. If you talked about the community, people from out west where there certainly weren't nightclubs like this. The interesting thing is we've sold Hellfire alumni T-shirts. People will be wearing them in Armadale, New Lambton, all sorts of <laughs> the fringes now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wogga, wogga. That hotbed of fisting, New Lambton. <laughs> there never has been anything like it. There never will be again. It was one of those things. It was a product of a particular time, a particular Sydney, a particular combination of people. Yeah, what about knockoffs? Are people going to try and copy of you? Of course, yeah, of yeah. course. They can try until they're blue in the face. People have tried ever since we started. People have looked at Hellfire and gone, oh, I'd like me some of that. I'll have what they're having and have tried and failed. And it happened time and time and time again. Perhaps with us out of the scene, perhaps that equation will finally change, but What really made Hellfire work for so long was that we genuinely held a particularly defined philosophy that we stuck to rigorously, even when it was economically irrational to do so. And that philosophy really was about embracing all ages, 18 plus, all shapes, all sizes, all sexualities, all points on the infinite gender spectrum, a place where it wasn't about the beautiful people, a place where it was really about the misfits, the outcasts, the weirdos, the picked on, the kind of people that would have been bullied at school, the kind of people that didn't feel like they fit in anywhere else. We were rigorous about 
that? No effort, no entry was always a good thing, but also you had the feeling that women ran the place. Yeah, we certainly centralised the experiences of women. At the time when Hellfire started, the fetish scene was predominantly gay male. Mm. Inquisition was around, it was predominantly a gay male dance party. Women were always an accessory rather than the point. There was a few parties that, again, heavily catered to gay men. We were the first event that really centralised women. And one thing I will be doing is putting a link to the show notes on this of the frequently asked questions and the rules of conduct. Your rules of conduct, not only are they very simple, they're comprehensive. And it's only about 10 lines or something, isn't it? We had 26 years to develop them (laughs) and they've changed across the years. And I remember at one point we wrote, please consider all women lesbians because they probably are. But as the club demographics changed and as, I don't know, society's got a bit dumber, we had to make the rules dumber. And eventually you get down to five lines, you know, just don't touch people. (laughs) Come on, don't touch people. Certainly being there on Friday night, everyone was being pretty respectful of each other. Did you actually have to toss many people out towards the end then or did everyone just know what the go was? The best part was they actually became a kind of a mutual police force that, again, before every event we would repost the rules and the rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. We would put it in the Facebook event and on the page and all this kind of stuff. So we keep reiterating it, reiterating it, reiterating it over and over again until it sunk into everyone's head. And the best part is we would then hear other people in the club quoting this stuff at each other. Again, by being really consistent, by having a really rigorous set of parameters that were just infinitely repeated, everyone actually adopted them, internalised them, and you would hear people saying them to each other as if it had come from within them. And that was really, really both interesting and encouraging. Something about Hellfire which is pretty unique, it looks a little bit like a 90s club in one way. Everybody hasn't got their phone out and looking at it. Ah. For two reasons, you aren't really encouraged to take photos because you don't know who's in the background and that's impolite, which would be a great rule for any club really. And also there's something going on. You don't want to be wasting the time you're there looking at your fucking phone. Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, we didn't want photos out there existing that outed people. That was our main desire. But we also had some really dodgy photographers over the years who'd come along and try to sell people's photos back to them. And we thought it would be much easier to just own them all. So were these people doing it for blackmail purposes? No, no, it wasn't blackmail. It's just that they were, my photos are my art. And I'm like, you've come to our nightclub and photographed somebody else's art. Mm. You have to give them the photo. So what we did was we paid for a photographer and we gave people the photos for free. And now you've got this great showcase of, do you actually know how many how many there's thousands there's of photos there's you've got? Yeah. There's, a, there's a, well over 100,000. Well Coffee over. table book. Coffee <laughs> table book. Read books anymore. Look, look, hey, don't be like Maz Images. I'd like these that come out before I die. Yeah. <laughs> now that we're not having to do the club every month anymore, then perhaps we can, over time, at a measured pace. Hello, Tashin Publications. We do have a significant problem with this because over the years so many people have come. We always treated people like adults and we didn't take model releases because we oh. thought that that was a stupid idea. Impractical too. <laughs> Impractical but also dumb. Like somebody's on drugs and alcohol and oh. you're going to get them to sign permission for an image to be used without saying what that is. Well, it's always worked on me. So I guess we'd have to think about how that could be achieved mm. if we were going to do something oh. archival. We have also got a ton of video footage, thanks to the wonderful Stephen, who mm. has very diligently documented our shows from the feet up. From the feet up. <laughs> <laughs> Just to explain, Stephen's a foot fetishist, at least in the yeah. early years of him documenting our show. There was an awful lot of shots of their feet. Hey, they're my shoes. 
news. <laughs> you'd be walking into the club and if the club was really busy, suddenly you'd find yourself going over a rise. Oh, it's it's him under a mat. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> Matt Man was actually another man. Oh. Matt the human um, He refused to have men walk over him. I'm like, you're in a nightclub. I literally cannot police gender yeah, on your mat. Bisexual in your mat use for tonight. <laughs> yes. Is there a point where you thought this is going just a bit too wild because there were some wild nights, particularly at the early black markets, mm-hmm. a point where you said, oh, my, wow. There was a few of those. I mean, the final night at 77, uh, that was just... Nailing. Fun. The crucifixion, I think we mentioned, is the <laughs> wildest thing that ever happened. So I remember some guy nailed his dick to a bit of wood once. Yeah, yeah. And for the hellfire people, I can take anything. I'm going outside to smoke. <laughs> we knew the crucifixion had gone too far because the next night we're sitting at home and somebody rang up and asked if they could get castrated on the hellfire stage <laughs> if we had a full medical team. And I was like, we're not mercy fucking general. Like, we're a nightclub. We're not castrating you. You need to call your psychiatrist. This is not a good idea. That is amazing that you'd even make that call to someone. <laughs> so then a week I mean, later... Does home nightclub get those calls? <laughs> a week later we had another email from somebody wanting to be a eunuch and I'm like, are you castration, man? Did you call me? He's like, no. Is there someone like me? And then, of course, I felt bad, so I tried to get some castration man to speak to eunuch man and then castration man said, no, I'm sorry. I actually, after speaking to you, I did call my psychiatrist and I've realised it's part of my mental illness. Were there some people that you suggested maybe it probably wasn't healthy for them to come along at any stage because they were getting into a mindset that wasn't healthy for them? Uh, other than castration, man. Yeah. We did try to make it very clear to performers that they didn't have to top the extreme of their last show. Yeah. I think there was an urge to just get harder and harder and to do mm. more and more. I had to make very sure each time we were using an extreme performance that the person was enjoying what they were doing and I think we had a really lovely talk to the lady who was crucified and she practiced in her backyard with nailing bits of chicken 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 chicken. getting in between the bones because yeah when I say she was crucified she was actually full Jesus job big nails through the palms but she went one further than I believe it was Easter it was done no no it was it was was Easter and she went one further than, than Jesus though not only did have the big nails through the centre of each palm, but she also had the webbing between each finger nailed to the cross with a nail gun. So there was eight nails from the nail gun and the big ones in the centre. After she came down and... I'm hoping that there was a large area off stage. A huge paper mache rock was rolled over Ah, where she went. No such joy. I had known what she was going to do and I was comfortable with what she was going to do, but I hadn't asked the process for how you get the nails out. And how do you get nails out of a block of wood? You grab them with pliers and you go... That's exactly how she did it with her hand. It was really hard. Like, I'm watching through the gaps in my fingers. It was so (laughs) bad. Anyway, fast forward to later on in the evening, she's been denailed and bandaged up and, and sterilised and all this, and she's got both hands bandaged up, and she comes up to us going, I'll never be able to play the piano again. And I went, what? And she went, oh, don't worry, I couldn't in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Public liability. Does public liability actually cover this sort of thing or is it considered an act of God? (laughs) Come on, that's fucking funny. Mistress Felina, she was on stage yeah. at eight and a half months pregnant yeah, doing, yeah. doing uh, Britney Spears' Oops, I Did It Again, a great look. Lots of great performers. You just want to name-check a couple of them that have been classics over the years. They let everybody's eyeballs and chins hit the floor. 
David Hoyle, who is a famous British performer, who got onto our stage and said that we needed to activate people in nursing homes or on palliative care to kill the bad people in our politics. Oh, okay. <laughs> a palliative antifa. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Mistress Felina, Mistress Artemis were incredible. <laughs> Gloria was incredible. Vixen, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Vixen was so hardcore. Mistress Jody, Mistress Mia was quite extraordinary and she was from opening night. Lots of guest appearances from lots of people over the years, ranging from Camille O'Sullivan, Amanda Palmer, Krista Hughes, and lots of people just randomly appearing, whether Frank it was Bennett. Frank Bennett, Pantera. Who's the biggest celeb that dropped in? Kim Wilde, of course. Yes. I got on the front page of the Daily Mirror on that one, with the headline was Wild Club, Kim and Me, on the old A-frame. Many intellectuals, book authors turned up. Yeah, Linda Javen. But we also did a lot of off-site stuff, including a, a private performance for Madonna when okay. she was touring right. the girly yeah. tour. Robert uh, Costello. Paul Mercurio. We were hired to beat the hell out of Richard Roxburgh to train him for a film called Passion about the life of the Australian composer Percy Granger. Okay. A whole bunch of series would shoot there. Okay. ABC. Oh, oh, no, people have said The Matrix was filmed there. Really? But I thought there were people from the Hellfire. No, 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 not in the Hellfire Club. It's not a black market. Black, black market so, right. where, so where he says, hi, my name is Neo in the club scene, that's at Hellfire. Yes. <laughs> Hellfire's been like a fetish Studio 54 where you could go there and do anything you want. I mean, it's the only place I think I've ever done drugs publicly in front of a room full of people. And not only did no one cared, <laughs> no one asked for any. They all had their own. Is there a movie that kind of describes a bit like preaching to the perverted was one I always thought? That and the secretary where the woman becomes aware and kind of starts to demand her own pleasure. Those were the two fetish films that really jumped out at me. But, yeah, preaching to the perverted captures the kind of the club atmosphere. And if you look at that opening sequence of the first Matrix film, that really captures the visual. That was all the Hellfire crowd. You know, all the people in the background, all Hellfire people. The only people that aren't are, are Carrie Moss and Canoe. That's what Hellfire looked like and that's what we were all dressed in our Hellfire clothes. That is an accurate reflection. Something else you've often mentioned is that Hellfire is what you want it to be, but also doing that lifestyle 24-7, as you've said a few times, is a bit boring. Look, it's not been for us. I recognise that for some people living this 24-7 is important, but I like people to be multidimensional and I think it's what makes fetish people so interesting that they have other interests and that this is a portion but not the whole of their life. Yeah, it's meant to be fun, you know. Otherwise, it's like someone who just becomes some kind of super athlete and that's all they do and that's all there is to them. It becomes very one-dimensional, very or, boring. Or 24-7 goths. But if they take that mood with them 24-7, it's going to be tough working with them in the office. <laughs> and I think it's also important to make sure stuff's still consensual. So you need to be able to jump out of role and actually have a normal conversation with somebody. <laughs> so, sorry, there's an angora, a small angora goat pushing the microphone around. <laughs> One of our Little fetishes. You've got 87 cats here, so I know dogs can be troublesome in a unit this size, but why cats? Cats can change a mood in an instant. Cats, you, you can't <laughs> tell a cat what to do any more than you can tell a wicked submissive. Cats aren't submissive at all. That's one them. of the many reasons we love them. Is there a final word? It's hard to give a last question for you because after 26 years and 10 months, and of course there was all those private parties, you did the no holes barred oh, parties. Yeah. Hey, the cat's on my shoulder. This <laughs> is cool. It's like a beautiful large feather boa. 
because it's got a big fluffy tail. <laughs> yeah, the final word on the whole thing. I think what taught us is just that everything's better if people are kind to each other and nice to each other and mm. accepting of each other. There was a reason it stuck around so long. It was an object lesson for everyone involved that being nice and not being exclusionary and not creating hierarchies and not privileging certain people over other people is just a better way of living and makes more people happy and makes you happy. It's really simple stuff. But it's stuff that you just honestly don't find in most nightclubs or in most of anything, really. We live the brand. I would say it's inclusivity as well. We have so many people message us when they join our mailing list. We used to have a comment box and it said, I've never been anywhere that I've fitted in before. Now, our club couldn't be that for every single person. So what it is is what they create. So by being nice, it's it's not the costumes. It's not hitting each other. It's none of the other things. They're bells and whistles. They allow you to get outside of yourself. But it's just by accepting that everybody has a right to be there and something to offer and finding that thing. And I suppose the vehicle for allowing that to happen was dressing up. That dressing up, The process of masquerade, a fancy dress or whatever you want to call it, gives you permission to behave in ways that you normally wouldn't and gives you permission to be someone who you normally aren't and to behave in ways you normally wouldn't behave. It's like a key that unlocks possibility for people. And what we created at Hellfire was a bubble of possibility, was like a little alternate universe, a little alternate reality where all of the normal rules of society about beauty, about sex, about gender, about whatever were all suspended and weren't being applied or enforced within this little bubble, a very fragile bubble it is. And what we gave to people and to ourselves was this momentary holiday from all of that stuff. That is what is common with most successful nightclubs and most people can't achieve that. And you're able to achieve that into a very difficult B&D fetish world. Well, we believed it. This was our philosophy. This is how we wanted the world. We created a nightclub that we wanted to be in because we didn't want to be in the ones that we'd been to. (laughs) That's probably the secret of most of them. The Mad Club was the secret of that. In fact, that should be the ethos we take away from that. If you don't like what you're listening to, the nightclub you're going to, start your own. Absolutely. See what happens. Yeah, absolutely. You can create alternative universes, alternative realities. And that's what the best parties, the best nightclubs, the best performances, the best experiences actually are. The best festivals are. They just suspend all the normal rules and all the normal prohibitions and inhibitions. What about for the future? Are you going to maybe do an annual thing? Will there be a no holes barred one of these days? Any thoughts of that? Or do you just want to go away on your holiday? <laughs> I think we need to have a little rest and reset and think about where we want to be. I I'm sure a million people will dive in on our night and try something in the interim, so I'm quite happy to clear the decks and let them. Hey, but with a minimum spend like that, they better have deep pockets. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it's been t- over 26 years, so we are really exhausted. You know, if, if someone had told us all those years ago that we'd still be doing this 20-odd years later, there's no way we would have believed them, and we deserve a rest. And we thought everything was going to get wilder, and it didn't. 
We thought it was going to become the 1920s and it's become the 1850s. And no, that was not a good time. It has been harder to promote because, as you pointed out at the very beginning, we went from people who were outsiders because they were rejected by society. And when you've been rejected by society, you kind of develop these ethics that you're not going to treat people like that. So now we are in a society where everyone feels like an outsider. So we're actually trying to promote to mainstream people, which meant the rules had to come back in. So it was kind of funny to go from a club that was full of renegades that didn't have rules to one that, that was full of mainstream people that needed rules. Well, part of that be because of identity politics. Everyone was being seen as a group and now everybody, because of intersectionality, can be a party of one. They can find differences very easily, maybe where before they could find similarity. Yeah, but also I think at least in the case of the BDSM fetish scene that it started off and Hellfire started off as a very inner, inner, inner city phenomenon centred around a few suburbs. And over the years it gradually radiated out further and further in concentric circles mm. until it started to take in the inner west and the outer west and then the greater Sydney <laughs> and then regional Australia and so on. Half of the people, at least half of the people that have been attending Hellfire over the last few years aren't even from anything like you would consider to be Sydney. There's a few people that are still getting over the Hellfire show you did at Darwin. Yeah, <laughs> they are. You know, All these things have happened, like Fifty Shades of Grey, that took BDSM or fetish or kink or whatever you want to call it out of being a very small and very kind of hidden subculture and made it really, really mainstream and then opened it up to all kinds of people. And there's good and bad that comes with that. The good part is for people who do have kinks or left-field tastes, they can feel less bad about it and go, and go. oh, my God, I'm not alone. There are other people who feel this stuff or share this stuff or are turned on by this stuff. But also, at the same time, it, it robs it of some of its subversive power. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. On the positive side, one Hellfire alumni has gone and taken the rules that we created at Hellfire and written a book for people negotiating sex, which I think is kind of cool to see what we developed for BDSM, like consent and verbal consent. Going further. Those rules will be in the show notes or a link will be in the show notes. The the subtitle is The Art of the Hookup. The Art of the Hookup. Yeah. Yeah. On behalf of everybody who went to Hellfire ever in the last 26 years and 10 months and no holes bars and everything, I'd like to thank you for a fucking great time. Yay. Thank you for coming. It was yours. It was everybody that came to club. It wasn't just ours. It was certainly something that we did together. I mean, otherwise, it would have been a very, very small thing. Our last night. We're going to be getting the dance floor going for a few more minutes with DJ Sveta. Have a wild time. On maynard.com.au. AU. Bryson and Hume. Everything digital.